0: Did you know that farmed fish is often grown in sewage water or slaughter farm runoffs? The shrimp end up all dark and oily and then get dunked into antibiotics. This is standard industry practice, terrible for sustainability and also terrible for human health. And it doesn't have to be this way. In this episode you will hear from Santya Sriram. She is co-founder and CEO of Shiok Meats. They create cell-based, clean seafood, starting out with shrimp. Shiok was founded 2018 in Singapore and has raised 7.6 million so far, being a top-featured, very promising leader of the industry. Stay tuned if you want to learn about the effects of the seafood industry on sustainability and your health why growing shrimp is so different from growing, for example, a burger patty, and Santia’s learnings from being a founder, including tips on how to work with the press. Santia is a TEDx speaker and has been featured in Forbes Women in Tech. She has a background in biological sciences and biotechnology with a PhD in stem cell biology. It was a pleasure to talk to her. She's a great speaker and the interview is packed with lots of valuable insights. You're listening to Season 1 of Red to Green on Cellular Agriculture. Animal products without animals, like cheese without cows and steak without beef. This is episode 11 on shrimp. Check out our earlier ones to get an introduction. If you're interested to work in the food and sustainability industry or establish yourself as an expert, consider volunteering or becoming an ambassador for Red to Green share your knowledge by writing articles and support the research of upcoming seasons. You'll find more info in the show notes. Thanks. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the Red to Green podcast on food innovations that are better for the planet and better for you. And I'm your host Marina Schmidt.
1: Sandhya, excited to have you on Red to Green. I'm excited to be here too, Marina. I mean, everybody's online now because we are all on a semi-lockdown or a lockdown mode. I think a lot of us are listening to a lot more podcasts nowadays. So I hope this one is useful and exciting, as excited as I am today. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I've been definitely uh, listening to way more podcasts. And the thing is that a lot of podcasts haven't A human side to it which makes it more interesting for the listeners more relatable could you share a fun fact with our listeners something quirky personal showing your
1: human side (laughs) sure i'm actually glad you asked that because i get on a lot of interviews and it's always about the company and the idea and the funding and like why are you doing this but not so personal anymore so one quirky side of me is i also have a great interest in fashion apart from being a scientist and a co-founder of a deep tech company I actually run a fashion blog <laughs> Oh wow. and I'm quite active on Instagram and recently I've taken a lot to like sustainable fashion and I think sustainability has always been on my mind but recently I've kind of embarked on this journey of sustainable fashion so if people want to check out anything they can go find me on Instagram. <laughs> What's your Instagram handle? Yeah, so it's S-C-I as in the first three alphabets from science. Uh And then my first name, Sandhya. So it's Sai Sandhya. Yeah.
0: Okay. You will find the Instagram handle and her LinkedIn and everything else in the show notes. So let's actually get into the problems and the possibilities. Red to Green describes that the food industry is right now in a red state, meaning it's harmful, it's polluting, and we want to move it to a green state at which it is healthy for people, healthy for the planet, and also sustainable. What are, let's say, the biggest problems in regards to shrimp? And I know you've said this like 10,000 times, so maybe you you can share the ones which are uh, the most impactful, which have touched you the most?
1: Sure, I can talk about it another 10,000 times as well. (laughs) I think the more people get educated, that's the better thing yeah. So the first issue with farm shrimp is that they're actually grown in horrible conditions, and this is one of my personal experiences. Actually, I've been a vegetarian all my life by choice, but I chanced upon a couple of shrimp farms when I was visiting Thailand and Vietnam, and I saw that the shrimps were actually grown in sewage water. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, next to it was a couple of pig and cow farms. And then there was mm. this slaughter farm runoffs coming in. And basically, mm. shrimps thrive in dirt because they are bottom feeders in the ocean. They feed on other dead plants and animals. So mm. these shrimp farms basically exploit that. And, like, they don't have to spend money on fish feed and water. So they basically use slaughter farm runoffs and sewage water to grow shrimps. And once these shrimps come out, they're literally, like, oily and black in color and stink. And trust me, I've never eaten shrimp in my life. So you can imagine what I went through in that <laughs> in that place. And these shrimps were taken and cleaned in antibiotics and bleach. That's literally what it was. And I think... Mm-hmm. Sewage water, antibiotics, and bleach should never be ever in the same sentence as food. (laughs) So the second is the huge amount of antibiotics that's used to clean these shrimps are actually then dumped into the oceans or the rivers. And that's actually leading to even more problems for the other sea animals and plants that are outside you. So it's not just accumulation of antibiotics in the shrimp, but also in the soil and the plants that you grow and so on, because they don't know where else to dump it. And that's, again, leading to your multi-drug-resistant bacteria and all of that happening around the world. So that's a huge issue of the seafood industry. Coming to ocean-caught shrimp, the major issue is that it's unsustainable. That's it. We are catching and fishing for so many shrimps every day, every second, that in the next five years, we're not going to have any more shrimps left for us to consume. That's literally Mm -hmm. what it is. So it's completely unsustainable. And the fifth is that there is a 1 is to 20 bycatch, which means you might have seen these trawlers or boats with huge nets tied at the back. And these Mm -hmm. are the ones that catch shrimps or fish for shrimps. So for every kilo or every pound of shrimp that you catch, you're actually getting 20 kilos or 20 pounds of bycatch, which is other fish, other sea animals, other plants that die, and then they're dumped back into the ocean So these are just some of the problems. But also one thing that I have to mention, again, Bloomberg broke this, was there's actual slave laborers working in China and other developing Asian countries where they're working in dingy, dark workshops with horrible conditions where they're manually deshelling shrimps for the Western market. And they're getting paid like 10 cents an hour or something like that. So it's heartbreaking to see these things and to hear these things. And it's not just a fad, it's a fact.
0: Yeah, you're saying they're preparing them for the Western market. And that's something that I find very interesting because um, living in, for example, Germany or even living in the US, everything seems a bit so far away, like where, where, for example, the seafood comes from is so far away. So do these things that you're talking about in terms of uh, antibiotic use and sewage water are these aspects also applicable to shrimps eaten in Europe or in the U.S.?
1: Yes, to an extent, yes. Actually, in the U.S. and Europe, it's more on the antibiotic use and as well as the conditions in which these shrimps are grown. For example, instead of growing 1,000 shrimps in, let's say, an X space of the farm, they're growing like five times of that. So it's overcrowded, Mm -hmm. leading to viral diseases in shrimp and so on. Interesting that you asked that question because most of the press has thrown upon light on the Asia Pacific shrimp market and the issues with it. But the reason yeah. being that a- APAC kind of produces 75% of the shrimps that the world eats. So mm-hmm. that's where a lot of light is thrown upon here. But we have come across reports where these issues are there in the West as well. And it's actually interesting where We have seen a lot of reports as to, you might say, shrimps made in Texas, but they're actually shrimps made in Vietnam, but packaged in Texas. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine what kind of traceability and opaqueness that brings to the consumer. You know, completely no transparency. So these are most of the issues in the West. But in the West, actually, uh, instead of using sewage water, they actually use slaughter farm runoffs because that's more prevalent Mm -hmm. in the West. And if you look geographically at where shrimp farms are located, they are generally within a 5 to 10 kilometer radius of a slaughter farm. So they actually use that slaughter farm runoff as the nutrient to grow shrimps.
0: That does not sound better to me.
1: Yep, it's not, but it's a practice that's been done and that's why we are here to kind of talk about it and disrupt it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Fortunately. So the listeners of the podcast, many of them have already heard of previous episodes and they are familiar with the concept of cultivated meat. So we don't need to go over the basics. When we look at what Shiok is working on, how have been your developments? What are you working on right now?
1: Sure. So we basically work on cultivated crustacean meat. So that encompasses shrimp, prawn, crab, lobster, crayfish. But we have put all our efforts in the last two years of starting the company on shrimp and we have just started working on lobster and crab. So these are kind Mm. of the three main animals or species that we are concentrating on. So a little bit of a background is that there's hardly any academic research or background information on cells or stem cells from crustaceans as you can imagine because Mm -hmm. most of the research is done on animals that are closer to humans which are mammals. So we had to do a lot of groundwork and my co-founder and I, Kai, and I started the company with a very clean whiteboard (laughs) and then Mm -hmm. we started filling in information as and when we learned about the animals and the cells. So it's taken us about two years to kind of understand the entire biology, chemistry, physics behind these stem cells and so on. But we have managed to make quite a bit of progress on the technology And we are on time to kind of commercialize this product in the next two to two and a half years. So that's kind of our timeline. So working towards that, two things for us. One is to reduce the price because currently Mm -hmm. there's a couple of thousand dollars to make a kilogram of shrimp meat. And unless you're super rich, you're not going to be able to afford it. (laughs) So we want to reduce it to a point where it'll still be a premium price product, but it'll be affordable by majority of the population. So that's what we're aiming towards. And the second is to also get to a scale where we can produce a couple of hundred to thousand kilograms a month so that we can actually sell it to consumers and we can have feedback from them and work on a better version if required and so on. So we're right now in the middle of R&D and kind of trying to set up our first manufacturing plant so that we can commercialize.
0: As there was no research in this field, I guess you already have a few patents, right?
1: Yes, so we have filed for two patents. One is on the base technology itself, which is kind of the isolation of the stem cells. How do you grow them? How do mm-hmm. you store them? How do you convert them to meat specifically for crustaceans? As I would said, we are kind of the first ones to do it and there's no academic research. The reason for us to patent is also to be able to license it in the future to other companies in countries where we don't want to set up manufacturing or mm-hmm. distribution And a second patent, I can't talk about it much because we're still in the early phases of it. But it's basically on a byproduct that's being produced from our processing that eventually actually converts into a food product. So hopefully I can talk about it a bit more next year.
0: (laughs) Okay, excited about that. So maybe you can describe the big differences between growing um, mammal cells Let's use a burger patty, for example, versus growing shrimp cells.
1: Sure. The first difference is that when you take a piece of red or white meat or let's say a burger patty, definitely it's it's a mix of cells or mix of tissues. So it's like muscle, fat, connective tissue, blood. All of these is required to get that flavor, the texture, the look, all of it right. The mouthfeel as well. But if you look at a piece of shrimp, once you deshell it, most of us don't eat the shell. So what's Mm -hmm. inside is this piece of meat and it's actually 100% muscle only. So there's no fat, there's no connective tissue. Of course, shrimp doesn't have the red blood that mammals have as well. So first thing first is that it is less complex when you compare it to red and white meat. The next is that for shrimp, again, I think it comes back to the less complex part of it, but um, these animals are simple. Also, they belong to the insect family rather than the animal family from where cows, pigs, and um, chickens to an extent come from. So they are much more redundant or simpler in their chemistry, biology, Mm -hmm. and so on. So... I mean, think of it, they are like a lower animal in the evolution of things, so they don't require as much nutrients to grow. I mean, you would have spoken about growth media, which is kind of one of these challenges in cultivated meat in your previous episodes, and you've discussed about fetal bovine serum or FBS being used to grow these cells. Interestingly, for seafood and shrimp, we don't need FBS, because as you can imagine, FBS is from a fetal calf, and which is a yeah. mammal, and we are talking about animals that are insects that essentially don't need FPS to grow. So, you know, to start off with the first hamburger patty that was made costed about $300,000 for Dr. Mark Post. This was five years back. Um, When we made our first dumplings with shrimp, it only costed us $5,000 for the kilogram of it. So -hmm. you can say that from the simplicity of it or the less complexity of it, we don't need as much expensive nutrients to grow them. And they're pretty simple in biology as well. So that means it's just one cell type. It's easier to grow in that sense.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've also read that the mammal cells are called adherent cells because they stick to the bottom of the surface. And that makes it harder for them to adapt to the bioreactor where they need to be floating in the serum, which is something that isn't even an issue with seafood, right?
1: Exactly. That's actually a very big advantage for us on the technical side. So when you think of cultivated meat, you're basically growing this meat and cell in a bioreactor, which are huge stainless steel vessels like you would find in a brewery. But instead of beer, it's brewing meats. And you need these cells to be floating in the nutritional liquid or the growth media that they are in and you want them to be able to move around, get the oxygen and the gases that they require, maintain the temperature and so on. So yes, most mammalian cells outside of the animal's body tend to stick to surfaces, glass or plastic or whatever it is. But seafood actually, the cells actually float, which is great. And we didn't know this about shrimp, but when Kai and I first kind of isolated the cells, we realized that, oh, these cells actually float. Excellent. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about microcarriers. We don't have to worry about how to get them to be in suspension from being adherent. So we essentially went into a bioreactor or a bioreactor-like setting almost from day one of starting the company. So that wow. has been a great advantage for us. And this makes you know things a bit more accelerated for getting into commercialization as well.
0: Yeah, but as you mentioned, you're not just doing shrimp, you have several other products in the category that you want to produce. How easy is it for you to jump from shrimp to other crustacean animals?
1: Right, so think of lobster and crab as a gigantic version of shrimp, literally. (laughs) So pretty much, I would say the chemistry and biology of it is very similar. The way we kind of treat the cells and the tissues are pretty similar as well. But of course, shrimp is the simplest. Crab is a little more complex. Lobster is more complex than that. So what I mean by that is they are bigger. But when you look at a lobster and crab, you do know that it has a body and then it has claws You know, it has different parts, unlike shrimp. Like shrimp is one dimensional to an extent, but uh, lobster and crab have different parts. So the meats from the different parts also have a different texture and different taste. So we have to be mindful of that. And also with lobster and crab, they do have connective tissue and fat to an extent, not as much Mm -hmm. as red and white meat, but they definitely do have a, a role to play in taste and texture when compared to shrimp. So these animals are a bit more complex for us. But having understood a lot about shrimp, it's been easy to kind of go on to lobster and crab. Took us two years for shrimp. Definitely will not take us two years for lobster and crab.
0: Yay. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, because with crabs, I mean, the, the whole fact that they are being boiled alive so often is so cringy. It makes it so
1: worthwhile to work on this. I completely agree and I think this is a topic of huge debate, especially on social media to start off with. Even lobster is kind of boiled alive and they say Mm. that the taste is conserved only when you do that. I don't really understand that. But, (laughs) but, you know, initially they were saying that crustaceans actually don't feel pain because they are invertebrates and they don't have a well-developed nervous system. So that's why it's Mm -hmm. fine. But recent research has shown that actually they do feel pain. They do have a nervous system to an extent, even though they don't have a spinal cord per se, they actually do have pain receptors. And you might have seen when you put a lobster or a crab inside boiling water, they do twitch. It's not like they just sit there happily getting boiled. So all of those are reasons for us to go after crustaceans as well. Other than the fact that they are basically depleting In numbers every second that we're talking currently
0: yeah yeah in one of your videos where you're mm, describing shiok meats i found a comment and it's something that i've also encountered a couple of times uh, already somebody saying please don't call it clean meat because this is artificial meat and we don't know what the long-term consequences are now i disagree with that uh, but what would you say about that
1: yeah so this is an interesting (laughs) thing that keeps coming up especially in the west and interestingly in the east we have never questioned what to name or label these meats you know even speaking to regulatory boards in this part of the world they never come up with oh you shouldn't call it meat or you shouldn't call it this meat or what meat and so on so my simple answer to that is if it's biologically, chemically, physically, the same thing at the end of the day, it's not, it's not fake, it's not artificial, we're not substituting the meat with some other ingredient, it's actual cells, actual tissue, actual muscle, um, or fat or connective tissue, then you should just call it meat. But yes, yeah. I think as part of consumer education and acceptance, you have to let them know how it's made. So you want to call it clean meat, cultivated, cultured, cell-based, I'm okay with anything actually. But as long as you be as transparent as possible to your consumers. So they're aware that this doesn't come from a dead animal and it comes from a manufacturing facility where cells are used to make the meats. I think that's what counts rather than, you know, what to name it.
0: Let's look at your founder's journey and what you have learned because a large part of our listeners right now are actually female professionals, a lot of them with scientific backgrounds, but not necessarily. Your founding team with two women, have you experienced being treated differently in any sense, whether it may be negatively or positively?
1: Again, this is a question that we have only got from the West. So I've kind of been in Asia all throughout my life. But I've traveled a lot around the world. And whenever I kind of go to the US or Europe, this is one question that I always get. And I've Mm -hmm. seen that bias or discrimination happen when I speak to Western investors as well. Like questions like, who's in your family? Oh, you have a son. Can you manage a company and your son and stuff like Mm -hmm. that? And in Asia, it's been pretty straightforward. It's been more like why are you quitting your well-paid job to start a company which is just an idea so it's more of an asian kind of mentality where you're supposed to get a steady paycheck you either become a lawyer engineer or a doctor per se Mm -hmm. and entrepreneurship is not very welcome in this part of the world but honestly kai and me we both being women we have never faced any discrimination for being females in asia Mm -hmm. but we have seen that in the west I'm being very honest about it. And we've got comments like, oh, you don't have any men in your co-founding team. And I'm like, so? Wow. <laughs> I'm <Wow>. like, so? <laughs> like you <laughs> don't say that to a three-member men team saying, oh, you don't have any women in your co-founding team. So mm-hmm. yeah, I've had that. And I've run two startups before this. And I kind of got the same comments from people from the West. But Asia has been, I would say, very welcoming In fact, numbers are showing that more Asian women actually are entrepreneurs than Asian men, which is kind of heartwarming in -hmm. the last five to 10 years, which is great. And I honestly don't feel that discrimination here. I I mean, this is my personal experience. Maybe others in Asia have felt that, but at least for Kai and me, I can speak for her as well. We haven't and hope that things get better for everyone.
0: Mm -hmm. How are you choosing your investors?
1: Yeah, good question. And we've been blessed to like choose our investors, (laughs) which is a good place (laughs) to be in. Our first investor was an angel investor called Ryan Bethencourt. It was like a crazy idea born between the two of us over a phone call. And Mm -hmm. I told him, you know what, I want to do it. I'm going to quit my job in the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to start this company that's going to grow cell based shrimp. And he was like, fine, I'll be your first investor. And that's literally how it started. And He has the best connections to the best mission-oriented investors in the alternative Mm -hmm. protein kind of sphere. And that's how we got introduced to a lot of his known people and then their known people and so on. (laughs) And then we started getting, you know, unsolicited emails and connections via LinkedIn saying, oh, we heard about your company. We want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. I just did a rough math of everything. And I have I would have at least pitched this company a minimum 5,000 times in the last two years. But I do a thorough DD on all investors, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like a thorough due diligence on whether, first of all, I want to have that first call. Yeah. And then the second is, should we share confidential information with them, even if you have an NDA in place? Your investors are eventually part of your company, right? So they become your shareholders and board of directors and so on. So you want someone who believes in the mission, believes in you. And also, this is a company that will not be profitable, at least for the next seven to eight years. So they have Mm -hmm. to understand that and be ready for it. So a typical VC fund or a private equity fund won't fit this kind of business model. It's more on impact investors and funds that have a longer lifespan. So you have to understand your business as a CEO, as a founder, And then also set your expectations as to what kind of investors you should be reaching out to, or when investors reach out to you, how to politely say no.
0: Hmm. So funny, I've heard Ryan be mentioned in so many different beautiful involvements in that industry. We had him on episode seven, talking about wild earth, so plant-based dog food, but also his process on working on cellular agriculture. Yes. Mainly, for example, for cats, and that's that's that been very interesting. You have additionally been part of Y Combinator. And could you share a little bit about the experience and what you have learned?
1: Sure. I think YC opened up our eyes to the global landscape of alternative proteins or the global landscape of running a biotech company, basically. I think that experience was invaluable, but at the same time, We kind of needed three things out of it and we got the three things. One was kind of that global perspective of things, which we did get with the time we spent with them. And of course, we're still their alumni. We get access to all of their information and access to their well-written articles and so on and advice and mentorship. The second was getting to that level where you get global press coverage as well, which is kind of very Mm -hmm. important because at this point, a company you know being a company without a product the press coverage is more for consumer education rather than anything else it's not for getting fame or whatever it is it's more like hey there's a company that's doing cell-based shrimp but how does cell-based meats work how would shrimp work what is this company doing what's their market Who, who are the founders and stuff like that and the third thing we wanted with From them was, of course, access to like really, really good investors. If you get into a really accredited, well-recognized accelerator or incubator program, you pretty much have a well-thought-through and sieved kind of investor list. You can always go back to YC and ask them, do you think I should speak to this investor? Like, do you think they're good enough? Are they really what they're portraying on their website or it's just all up in the air? So you can actually ask questions like this to them and they actually come back and give you valuable advice. So Mm. I think it was an experience that I would have never traded for anything else and I'm glad that we did it.
0: You said that press is extremely important. I mean, in terms of education in the space, what have you learned about doing good press work or being featured in big media outlets?
1: Yeah, so I think... One thing that I've definitely learned is when a topic is really hot, you get too many press invites. So decide Mm -hmm. whom you want to kind of run your stories through and see which journalist or which press outlet wants to spend some time with you to kind of learn a bit more rather than just sending over questions or please answer it via email and I'm done. You know, you want to get that journalist to understand your technology because no journalist shares their article with you before publishing. And especially if it's in print, it's really hard to go back and change, per se. So you want to make sure your technology is well understood and well converted into simple English for everybody to understand, which is a hard skill of its own. You have to learn the art of saying no, but still keeping the press kind of in your loop so that if you have an exciting story tomorrow, you can go back to them with it and they'll pick it up.
0: Well, I'm very happy that you... (laughs) are here <laughs> and on the red to green show i um, super happy about that hope to continue with a, f- a few more questions so do you have advice for people who want to get into the industry maybe they have a scientific background maybe they don't but they don't really know how they can get the foot in the door
1: okay so one thing that i always say is go for it if you don't try it, you'll never know whether you like it, whether you're good at it and whether you can do it. So mm-hmm. you can have this amazing idea in your head and see entrepreneurship is never easy, right? So the first step, the 10th step, the 100th step is always hard. Mm-hmm. Everything in entrepreneurship is hard, but you do it with a sense of ownership and a, and a sense of belief. Every step that you take, you might question yourself, but take the step. I would say go for it. But give yourself a timeline, like for me and Kai, when we started this, we had given ourselves 12 months and we said, we'll We'll work hard as much as we can till August 2019. Let's see if the idea that we have works out. Let's see if we can come up with a prototype. Let's first of all, see if we can isolate stem cells from shrimp because nobody's ever done it before. And let's see if we can get some minimal funding so that we can sustain the research part. And we gave ourselves 12 months time, but in 12 months, we achieved a lot more and then basically shiok meets us the rest of our lives that's what it is but if we hadn't taken that first step we would have never ever known and the second thing i would say is know when to give up you know like i mentioned set a timeline let's say you've set one year and on the 11th month you're still kind of pushing it and nothing's working out it's Mm -hmm. probably time to let go and think of something else once an entrepreneur always an entrepreneur to an extent So I'm sure you have another better idea to work on. So give up and start doing something else or go back to a job for a couple of years, get that confidence back and then step into it. So Mm. make sure that you have some financial backup before you can take that next step and go out there again. Yeah, I've
0: heard you um, elaborate a little bit about your personal story because the founder's journey obviously takes a lot of dedication, and there's a lot of responsibility. And I think it also takes a certain personality or stamina to to hold that all. Could you give the, the listeners a bit of a glimpse into what has been your development path as a personality to, to get to the point?
1: Sure. Pretty much had a very regular childhood, but I lost my father when I was just 15. So that mm-hmm. kind of brought in, you know, shock into our lives. And then it was just my mom and me. And we literally didn't know. I mean, I was 15. I was in 10th grade, Mm -hmm. and I didn't know anything about life or what was money or how to earn. And, you know, financial struggles put me a lot Um, into worries but at the same time taught me how to get through it so it's pretty much like running a startup you have (laughs) you know it's like you're always worrying about money but you still need to move forward you need to pay your people you need to pay yourself to an extent but then you start looking for money and you start pitching your idea and you do that yeah I mean those are some of the things in life that has brought me to this place where I can say that you know what, I'm very sure of what I'm doing. And I think also where life has taken me, you know, being a mother of, mm-hmm. uh, of a kid has taught me multitasking to an extent mm-hmm. that I never knew <laughs> humans can do. <laughs> <laughs> to get to the last question, yeah. if you
0: would have 50 million, in what businesses would you invest it in? If you obviously can't invest it in Shiok because that would be a worthwhile investment. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I have just taken up angel investing. So I invested in my first ever company in India, which is a plant-based egg company called Evo Foods. So I would definitely invest in plant-based foods. I would probably not invest as much in plant-based meats because I would I believe cell-based meats are a better solution. <laughs> so I would probably invest in cell-based meats, cell-based seafood, more plant-based proteins of sorts you know eggs for sure maybe dairy and so on i would definitely invest in sustainable fashion like you like i've said Mm -hmm. that's one of my pet peeves and i would definitely go for that
0: awesome Santia,
1: thank you so much for this beautiful interview thank you so much i hope it was good and i hope your listeners enjoy it
0: in the next episode, you will hear from Isha Tatar, executive of New Harvest, a nonprofit that has been crucial for the development of cellular agriculture. Slowly but surely, the season is wrapping up with only a few episodes left. The next season will give you an overview of innovations that can replace the single-use plastics in our food system. If you want to stay up to date on the most impactful innovations in food and sustainability, remember to subscribe and share the podcast with your friends. Until next time, let's move our food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.